Uh, this is one of those unique nights. I don't have anything to say as far as announcements, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump right into uh, God's Word. So why don't you guys grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Galatians. And uh, what we've been doing on Sundays, on the weekends, is we've been going through books in the Bible. Um, we've been doing that actually since we started uh, the church many years ago. And kind of what we do is we just take books of the Bible and we let God speak to us. And it's kind of um, our way of just submitting ourselves to what the Bible has to say to us. And uh, what we're going to be doing tonight is taking a look at this great book called Galatians. It was written by the Apostle Paul. So if you guys would open up there and uh, we'll jump in there. Um, I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll read the passage that we'll be taking a look at here tonight and then we'll jump in. And uh, so let's pray. We'll read, jump in. God, we just welcome you here tonight to just come and move and work in our hearts. We thank you that... um, God, for us to even pray or to sing, we surrender all. God, our, our little sacrifices of our lives, uh, the only reason why we can even say that is because Jesus surrendered his all to the Father. Because the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us, God, that sets a place and a position for us to be making sacrifices. Lord, it allows us to be able to love you because you loved us first. So we ask you tonight, God, that you would just help us to come and run to you and see you as a good father, as a good daddy who cares for us, who desires to set us free, who desires to help us and to uh, bring deep joy to us. So we just commit this evening in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Galatians. We kind of come to chapter 5, and one of the things um, we've been looking at over the past few months as we've been going through this is when we first started out, we were kind of taking larger chunks of Scripture, I don't know, maybe four or five. That's, kinda large, large, that's like large chunks of Scripture for us, four or five verses, six, maybe ten every once in a while, blue moon, all the plants are aligned. And, uh, but for the most part, what we've been doing over the past few weeks is we've actually kind of been slowing down a lot because chapter five and chapter six, the last two chapters, uh, are really beefy. I mean, they're meaty verses, and they are just full of a lot of stuff that we want to make sure that we don't miss. And uh, I'll give you an example. So tonight, what we're going to be taking a look at here tonight is really one half of a verse. We're not even going to be looking at a whole verse. We're going to be looking at one half of a verse, and uh, we'll see how far we get from there as well. Um, but in the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is something that I've actually never done before. Uh, by the time you get to chapter 5, kind of the latter part of uh, chapter 5, there's this whole section in Galatians that most people, most Christians, if you've been involved in any type of Christian circles at all for any length of time, uh, you're probably familiar with these verses. It's verses that are typically identified as what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, some of those uh, aspects like that. Uh, it's one of those verses that people love to like print on t-shirts and put on coffee mugs and uh, like, like monogram and put them up on grandma's wall. Like the fruit of the spirit is love. You know, it's all these like weird kind of crazy things that Christians love to do. And, uh, but one of the things that I want to try to do actually as we go through this, I actually want to slow it down to such a pace where we actually look at one word week. So we're actually going to be slowing down even further over the next few weeks to come and really just be looking at one uh, aspect of what it means to be walking in the fruit of the Spirit, living in the fruit of the Spirit uh, per week. But one of the things that I really want to do with that is I want to try to understand the fruit of the Spirit, not just 
as they are, because oftentimes when you hear messages on them or you hear them talked about, uh, they're usually taken out of their context and they're not really looked at in terms of the larger picture of what's going on in Galatians. So what I really want to try to do is I want to try to understand, for example, love as it's uh, embedded into the gospel of grace. Love as it has to do with freedom. Uh, Peace as it has to do with the gospel and grace. Um, Joy as it has to do with the gospel embedded in this larger context of the book of Galatians. I'm going to look at all these things. So we'll be doing that in the next few weeks to come. So we'll actually kind of uh, elongate a little bit further our study in the book of Galatians. But I hope it's going to be a blessing to you guys. Uh, I know it's been a blessing to me as I've been studying it, just kind of being prepared for it. But tonight what we're going to look at is really just a half of a verse. Uh, So we'll direct you guys to chapter 5, book of Galatians, verse 13. I'll read it. We'll stop. Jump in. Says this, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Stop. All right, that's it. That's what we're looking at. You were called to freedom. You're like, wow. You were called to freedom, brothers. All right? Some of you women are like, hey, no brother. Right. Uh, in the same way, us men aren't brides. All right? Bride of Christ. Uh, so we're just going to count it even. Uh, we looked at this a few, week, few weeks ago. That the reality is, Paul kind of uses sort of these. Uh, gender type words. Uh, brothers is not just necessarily excluding women. This is a way of describing it and identifying the broader body of Christ. But Paul's whole point right here is to kind of bring things to sort of a climactic head, meaning the whole point, the whole purpose of what Christ came to do was to actually call us to freedom, to call us to freedom. In fact, I would go so far as to say is, would be that the larger heading, the larger umbrella context if you want to look at salvation, has to do with this whole larger picture of freedom. Because some of us might be like, well, I thought salvation was about being forgiven of sins. It is that. Um, I thought salvation was about going to heaven. It is that. I thought salvation was about being able to conquer various bad habits in your life. It does that too. But the larger, bigger, broader picture or concept that Paul sort of couches all of these things into is this larger idea of freedom. Freedom sort of is the larger heading. So being free from sin or having been forgiven of sin leads us to this larger notion of being able to be free. In other words, the reason why we sin is because we are slaves of sin. Jesus said that. Those who are slaves of sin will ultimately die because of their sin. So what salvation does, what God does through the gospel, is he actually frees us from the sin that besets us or enslaves us so that now we're free so that rather than falling prey to that various aspect of sin or sinfulness or sinful living, we now are free. We have got freedom. We're free to live out God's desires. We're free to live forever with God because we have a new heart, a new nature, new passions, new longings that God's gifted to us. So freedom is the larger context in which Paul sort of puts everything into So he starts off by making a statement that we were called to freedom. Now, one of the things that I want to basically jump right into and state is that the gospel actually changes us. And I want to really talk about this whole notion, this concept of change. That the gospel's purpose of working in our lives is to actually bring about freedom. So technically what the gospel does is it actually fundamentally changes us. We looked at this a few weeks ago. That the problem with all humanity, and it's implied in the whole context of you're called the freedom brothers, like what Paul just said, that without freedom, the opposite would be that we are slaves. 
So the point that the gospel would make, the point that Paul would be making, is that either we're free in Christ or we're in bondage to something else. A couple weeks ago, I made the statement that every single one of us serve something, somebody, or some idea. All of us do. I want to take it a step further today and say that really the gospel intends to change us, to bring about transformation. Now, this is a big deal to us. Because at the end of the day, all of us, I think we're honest, we realize that there are areas in our lives that we wish we can change. Various attitudes we wish we didn't have. Various habits we wish somehow we can break. Various relationships that are kind of fragile or broken or not the way that they should be, we wish they were different. Uh, various you know, traits that we pick up from mom and dad. We're like, dang, I wish I didn't have those things. We wish we can break that cycle. And we can all look at our lives and say there are various areas within our life we wish we could change. Interestingly enough, the gospel actually brings about some sort of fundamental change. It's not change merely on the surface. It may lead to that, and it oftentimes does lead to that. But it actually brings about change on a more fundamental level having to do with our heart. This is really important because our whole culture really, if you look at it, is all about change. We want to change. All of us. It's one of the reasons why some of you guys stay up really late, mesmerized by, you know, little infomercials. Like, does it really work putting a belt around your waist to you get six-pack abs? I mean, does it really work? And you're like mesmerized by that. Like, you spend a half an hour watching that. Like, I can't believe it. That belt, look at that guy. He was flabby before, now he's got like six-pack. It's amazing, all from that belt. It doesn't work. I mean, not because I know, but the point that I would make is that we, we, we love looking for these things that are somehow going to promise change. We just, we, we love watching these things because we actually think it works, but oftentimes it doesn't. Or if it does work, you actually become a slave to something new. You know, I mean, I, I admit, I, I actually sometimes like watching these infomercials because some of them are so ridiculously cheesy, all right? They're so bad, some of them. I was watching this one. They were talking about how, you know, take this pill. We promise you're going to lose weight. But what they don't tell you, these things cost a ridiculous amount of money. You got to, like, sell your left arm in order to get it. Not only that, but at the end, they're like, in the small print, the fine print, the guy who talks ridiculously fast, he's like, side effects might be you lose a liver, your eye goes blind, you won't talk anymore, you'll talk with a stutter, like all these horrible things, like something's not right about this. They don't tell you all that ends up happening. So even though you might get six-pack abs or lose some weight or whatever the case is, you're not going to be able to see anymore. You'll have to talk with a stutter. You'll have to, you know, it's just horrible. You don't want that. So you end up becoming a slave to something new. Does that make sense? No. Anyways, the point that I would make is this, is that we find ourselves in a, in a, in a really cross-section when it comes to the gospel, is that the gospel wants to set us free. That's God's desire. Because the implication is that we're not free. We're bound. We're bound by something. But the gospel, the way it changes us, is that it changes us fundamentally by placing us in a position whereby we are truly free. This is very important. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is the central theme of the narrative of the Bible. Freedom. You see glimpses of it from the time of the Exodus. What's the whole story of Exodus? It's freedom. It's freeing God's people. How? How are they free? Because they're good people? Because they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and might? Because they're going to church? 
You know, because of serving Yahweh, how did God set the people free? The only way that God set them free was he set in place this absolutely crazy plan. He said, the way that I'll set you free is everybody who will be set free are those who take a lamb, kill it, slaughter it, put the blood on the doorpost of their house. Everybody who's in the house, underneath the house of the blood, will be set free. Everybody else, the angel of death will go over and kill you. God's whole point is that even from the very beginning, freedom comes not by what you've done, not by the promises you make, not by the diligence of your life, but by the sacrifice of God, by the deliverance of God. That's how God does this. So that same theme is carried all throughout. Jews always understood that the reason why God set the people of Israel free from Egypt was not so that they can go on and be their own independent nation of people, but was so that they can go on and become the nation of God's people. So immediately after they were led out of the nation of Egypt, God immediately led them to Mount Sinai, which is when they were covenanted into a relationship with God to be God's people. So in other words, the whole point of freedom was not so that they can now free, go do, be, whatever it is that you want to do, but be the people that God calls you to be. True freedom does not happen by you just doing whatever it is that you want to do. I was thinking about this the other day. Let's say, for example, some guy who gets thrown into jail for murdering someone because he's a drug addict and he's dealing with some sort of drug issues and he ends up murdering someone, goes in jail for 15 years, ends up getting out after 15 years, let's say, and now he's free. But he doesn't know what to do with his life now. He doesn't have any job abilities. He doesn't know where to work. Nobody will hire him because, you know, he's an ex-con. Everybody's scared of the guy. He doesn't, know where, he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't have any family to live. So basically this guy, even though he's technically free, his own mind isn't free because his mind is now probably going to go back to doing what he was known to do before in the past, which will end up winding him back into another type of slavery. So here's my point. The Bible's affirmation, or Bible's proclamation about us is that all of us basically are governed by someone, something, or some idea. All of us. What I mean by governed is I mean that we have something above us, beyond us, that is somehow directing and guiding us. It could be a passion. It could be a desire, a longing. It could be even a dream. It could be something that even is as dark and deadly is like a fear, some sort of fear that is controlling you, it's compelling you, it's leading you, it's prohibiting you from being able to be the person maybe that God wants you to be or to take chances that maybe God wants you to take or whatever life would, would, would need for you to take. So you're bound by certain things. It could be within a social setting, say for example like Libya, you know where they have a despot or some sort of an autocrat that they're trying to get rid of or in Egypt. And the reality is, is that even though, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm not a prophet, but I'll basically predict to you that if, you know, these guys end up getting kicked out of place, out of position, whoever's going to be the next leader over those countries will probably end up becoming just like the former leaders. Maybe not as bad, maybe not at, front, at first, at start, but maybe give it five years, ten years, somewhere around down the road, there's a tendency for whoever is going to be in that position again to be another type of autocratic leader, dictator, despot. Not really seeking the interests of the people, but seeking the interests of themselves. Because the point that I'd make is this, again, is that all of us in this life, doesn't matter who you are, 
we're all under the government of somebody, some idea, or something. Let me give you a couple examples. Some of these various aspects of government that we find ourselves under are innocuous, meaning they won't affect us. They're not very negative. They're not going to cause major problems to our lives. Some of them are very deadly. For example, if you are under the influence of drugs, right? I mean, I'll just take the most obvious example. If you're under the influence of meth and you let that control your life, you will see your life spiral out of control. It's very destructive, not only to you, to your health, but to other people whom you love, all right? It's, it's a deadly drug that will destroy you. It will destroy everything. It will control you in every particular way of your life. That's one of the most obvious examples of some sort of addiction or control over somebody. But again, there are lesser types of ways by which we are influenced and control. For example, why did you wear the clothes that you wore today? Why do you wear the clothes that you typically wear? Well, some of you, there's a lot of answers to this, some of you, because those were the clothes that were laying on the floor once you got out of bed. All right? Because you're not free, you don't clean your clothes, you're not free to wear clean clothes. You don't know how to clean your clothes. You don't have a maid. So funny, I was out in El Salvador, and this is awesome. I was hanging out with these guys out in El Salvador, and these guys are with Crusade, and they're like, we love, we have, we're like, we have our own maid. They're like, we love it. She makes us dinner. She's like five bucks a day. And she washes our clothes, takes care of us. I'm like, you guys are awesome. This is great. She's like, she takes care of us. We call her, I don't know, they call her a grandma or something like that. I'm like, this is amazing. So the point of the matter is that some of you don't have clean clothes. And so you are basically reduced to having to wear what you have around you. It's just simply dirty clothes. Others of you, you choose the clothes that you wear very carefully because for you, you have this mentality in your mind that says you have to wear a particular type of clothing because that's what will get you affirmation from this particular type of people that you really are going after. You want them to like you. You want them to affirm you. You want them to think highly of you, think of well of you. So you're basically bound to wear these types of clothes that are very expensive. You're not free to go out and wear something from Walmart, all right? Bad example, but the point that I would make is this, is that you're not free, you're bound. You're bound to basically spend a lot of money because you have to impress certain people. That's the way that you live. That's the type of uh, restrictiveness that is upon your life. So you are bound to have to drop loads of money to spend on expensive clothes in order to impress people you really don't even like, that may not even really like you, but that's the world that you live in. You're trapped, you're bound, all right? Some of you guys, you can ask the question, why are some of you, for example, if you go to Cal Poly, why are you at Cal Poly and not some other school? Well, for some, it's because that was a school of choice. You got into it. Congratulations. That's great. Others of you are there perhaps because that was the school that mom and dad went to. And because they're the ones throwing down the money, paying the bill, you are basically bound to go to that school. You had no choice in it. It was just, it was something that was decided for you. You had no choice. You're there. And that's just the way it is. Uh, why do some of you choose the careers that you choose? Well, some, it's because you really wanted to be in that place. You worked hard for that. That was your desire. It was fine. Others of which, you find yourself locked into something that you can't get yourself out of. Some people stay in jobs because they can't see themselves getting outside of that job. Because in their mind, they think, I'm not going to be able to get a job any other place. So I'm locked into something that I really hate. It's horrible. I don't like the boss. I don't like the people. But it's what I'm stuck into. These are various forms, various ways in which I'm saying we're kind of bound. 
There are various ways. Now, again, most of these, again, like I said, are kind of innocuous. I mean, they're not going to affect you spiritually. They're not going to necessarily destroy your soul. They don't. But they just are various ways by which I'm saying none of us, at the end of the day, are fully 100% free to do anything we want, any way that we want, any time we want. All right? And if some of you are like, well, I'm single, I can Well, there's going to come a day, you're going to get a boyfriend, you're going to get a girlfriend, you're going to get married, you will immediately find that even within a relationship, freedom, the way you think of freedom, just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, if even, let's say you're going out with somebody, and all of a sudden you have this relationship with somebody, and you want to just go out and hang out with the guys, or hang out with the girls or whatever. You're not free to, you got to actually ask now, is it cool if I go hang out with the bros tonight? Like, you got you, that you're not free. It's an illusion, all right? You're re, you have to actually now work in relationship with other people to somehow work moving forward. You're not free. So this concept of freedom that we oftentimes think of it as is being able to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it, because I'm a fully free person, functioning person, is an illusion. It just doesn't simply exist. I want to basically point out to you at least three different ways in which the Bible teaches us that we are governed by various concepts, various things. The first thing that I notice that the Bible teaches us in terms of what we are governed by or what motivates us is this whole idea of being self-governed. The reason why this is important is because the Bible actually is going to say that if you, if you want to change, if you want to bring about change in your life, if you want to bring about change in your world, if you want to bring about change in your marriage, in your environment, in the nation we live in, but again, starting first and foremost with yourself, the way that you go about this actually matters. Here's why. Paul was writing this letter to this group of Galatian people. All right, These were Gentile people. They were non-Jewish. They came to know Jesus. Their lives were transformed by the gospel. They met Jesus. Their lives were never the same. Until this group of religious leaders came in and they said, you know, for you to be really Christian, what you need to do is you need to adopt the laws of Moses. You need to get circumcised. You need to follow the rules and restrictions and regulations that we have. And, uh, and then you'll be changed. It's very possible that what had happened was this group of people, even before these religious leaders came in, were starting to bicker and fight. And, you know, typical Christian human individual people will fight and bicker from time to time. Uh, the reality is that we're human beings. I, I, I think it's very important to understand, when we talk about the church, there's two different ways that oftentimes people view the church. There's sort of the fundamentalist mentality that looks at the church and just says, we're a bunch of Christians, we're really good, and we're really happy, and we just love Jesus all the time, and we're just, we're just so delighted that we're saved, and we use Christianese all the time, and we, just, we talk about the delights of heaven, and we use big words that Puritans use, and we... we, we and the reality is a lot of that just kind of fake. It's not real. It portrays this picture that the church is a bunch of people that are actually like perfect. So we know that's not true. And most people that a lot of times have been involved in churches and they're like, they see through that. They're like, this is a joke. It's like everybody is acting like they're all happy. They're all good. They're all like happy people. It's just, it's not real. The flip side of it is, is you have people that are broken and wounded, their hearts are shattered. Sin has basically destroyed them. But even though they're sinners, they're redeemed sinners. Christ has redeemed us. 
And so the church gets together, when the church gathers, especially on days like this, when you gather in community groups outside of our larger meetings on the weekends, you'll find that there will be conflict. You'll find that not everybody's going to get along with each other. You'll find that someone will say something that will offend somebody else, and someone else gets in on this, and they get hurt, and someone else gets hurt. And you got all these people that are griping and complaining and fighting against each other. It's just a natural tendency of what happens within a church. Because when you get sinful people together, that's what happens. We offend each other. We sin against each other. But because we're redeemed, we have an anchor in heaven. We have an anchor into God's character that should actually call us back to a place of dealing with our offense in a way that brings about healing. Does that make sense? So the whole notion that's just like, I don't like Christians, they rub me the wrong way, I'm out of here, I'm going to abandon them, divorce myself from them, is actually not, not Christian. It's not the heart of God. The heart of God would be to say, yes, these people bother me, but I love them. I love them. That's kind of what God did to us. Yes, they offend me. Yes, they are at enmity against me, but I love them. I created them, and I want to heal them. I want to bring about healing within their lives. That's what the gospel does. So the point that I would make is that if you're going to bring about true change in your life, the way that you go about it actually matters. Here's why. Because the goal of Christianity is not just making you a better person. It's making you a free person. This is really important. Don't miss, any, don't, don't miss this over anything else. The goal of Christianity is not making you a better person. It's making you a free person. That's really important because if you look at it as a way that Christianity is about making you better, then the way that you go about to get better actually can end up leading you into another form of slavery. This is what religion is all about. Religion says, we'll make you better. Here's how. Follow our rules, follow our laws, follow our restrictions, follow our patterns, follow the stuff that we threw out to you, and you'll be better. Because this is what the elders of the church voted on, and this is what we say or declare is the righteous standard of life in our church. Problem is, you leave that church, you go to another church down the street, there's another set of rules. You leave that church, you go to another church, another denomination, another group. There's another set of rules. At some point, if you've ever played like jump around church game, you realize all sorts of churches have their own little forms of baggage and their own little identities, their own little tribal handshake that says, you'll be in our club if you follow the standards that we set out for you. At the end of the day, you can absolutely just lose your mind. And that's oftentimes what ends up happening. The bottom line is this. The goal of the gospel is to set us free. But by setting us free, we do become better people. Not based upon our own standard, but by being transformed in the image of Christ. Does that make sense? So the way that we go about change absolutely matters. So here's a few different ways in which we can look at this. It's at least three different ways in which we're governed. The first two... If you can see that, it's kind of red, so it's a little bit hard to see. The first two Paul's going to identify as being, this is what it means to walk after the flesh. In other words, you're using means that are not divine means, God's means, 
to somehow better yourself, to better your life, to make your circumstances a little bit more improved, Paul would say these are, these are actions of the flesh. And then the other way are the actions of the spirit or the working of the spirit. So the first, two, first one is this, that you are either self-governed Again, this is sort of an illusion. This is the mentality that says, I'll lead myself. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll live according to my own life. I'll do the things that I can do to better myself, to make myself more improved, to live, to succeed, to just sort of push myself forward. You do this by sheer grit, by sheer determination. Some of you are really good at this. Some of you are very, very disciplined people, and the rest of us envy you. All right, you're the ones that wake up super bright and early. You're very disciplined. Everything is methodical in your life. You're the type of person that just is able to sit for hours and pray. The rest of us are like, I'm so ADD. I can't even focus for five minutes straight. Like something's wrong with me. But the reality is some of you are really good at being able to be very self-disciplined. And there's some elements to that. That's wonderful. That's great. Problem is, is that really it's an illusion. Because even though you may think that you're bettering yourself, by conquering certain bad habits, or by somehow bettering your life, by becoming more disciplined, by doing better things, by walking better, by living better, by treating people better, at the end of the day, really what you're doing is you're just, you're sort of, you're puffing yourself up, you're making yourself prideful, you're making yourself arrogant, and you have to be from that place looking at other people with despite. It's one of the reasons why some of the people that are the most successful or are able to be the most disciplined sometimes can actually be the most self-arrogant, self-righteous. And this goes both ways in the church and out of the church. I mean, maybe some of you have met that guy in the church or that girl in the church. Her whole life just seems to be totally together. She looks down upon those of us that aren't. That aren't. And there's a tendency to be like, man, I feel so horrible around this person. I'm such not a good Christian around this person or compared to this person. Because what's going on is you see that this form of self-government. I said this a couple weeks ago. The reality is when we talk about governing ourselves, one other element that's really sort of important to note about this is that we as human beings, we, we tend to be very complex human individuals, meaning even our own desires that we have contradict one another. We really do. We, we, we are complex people that even our very own desires that we have are contradictory. They collide. They're not harmonious with each other. So if you were to live out of sort of this bucket of all the pleasures that you have in your life, I mean, if you were to live according to every single one of them, your life would be a disaster. So even the very desires that we have are, not, are really not good. And oftentimes very contradictory to one another and will never really accomplish a goal. So true freedom is not just somehow becoming self-made. It's not somehow pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's not by being self-determined. It's not by just somehow being able to conquer all adversities based upon sheer grit and discipline. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. The second thing that we see in terms of being governed is a system governed. It's the form of not self-governed, but the next one is system-governed. And what we see, this is kind of what Paul's talking about here in the book of Galatians. The type of system that Paul is going to be addressing, first and foremost, is the Torah. This is one of the reasons why Paul, around chapter 3, spends a lot of time talking about how the Torah, even though it was an important part of the life of the Jewish people, it never really could change the fundamental 
strictures of a person's heart. It couldn't change them. I think what Paul is trying to do is to basically say, look, out of all of the systems in the world, out of every type of system that can be established in the world, the highest, most pure, most righteous, most good system out of all of them is God's law, God's Torah. It says even that is incapable of changing you. Here's, here's what I mean. The Torah can't change your heart. It can't. It was never intended to. Let me give you an example. Around September, right after school came back into, uh, you know, going, I was driving down the street, Los Valley Road, by my house, and uh, I got a ticket, straight up. I just got a ticket. I was driving down, I was going like 45 miles an hour, and it was in a uh, 25-mile-an-hour path, and it was right when school had just gotten out. It was like the first week of school, maybe the second day of school, something like that, and there's a cop sitting right there. I didn't see any kids, but he pulled me over, and right when I saw him put on his flashes, I'm like, ah, dang. So anyways, I pulled over. I got my ticket. I ended up having to do traffic school. Let me, let me, let me just be straight up. I, I, don't, I don't have this fundamental change in my heart now that says, oh, the laws of the land, how I love thee. I want to obey thee. You know, I don't, I don't, my heart is not changed in any way. I still break the law, all right? I still speed. I still do things that I shouldn't be doing. I still drive down there. Honestly, you know what I do now? Be straight up honest with you. I drive, and I'm, I'm looking for the speed trap now. I'm just like, I know where the dude's at. I know where to look now. I won't be caught a second time, all right? So I'm like more careful. It doesn't necessarily slow down a little bit. I'm way more careful to look for the guy. My heart doesn't love the law. My heart doesn't love that standard of righteousness. I actually resist it. I resent it, but I got caught. The law didn't change me. It didn't make me fall in love with the laws of the land. It didn't make me fall in love more with America. It didn't make me fall more in love with the legislatures who make all this stuff. I don't love it. The Torah, as high as it is, as holy as it is, it can't make us love God. It can't do anything inside of us. I told you guys, I have, my oldest daughter is a freshman in high school. Our typical routine every single day, Monday through Friday, usually Monday we go, she has a late start on Monday, so we usually always go get coffee and we go to school. But usually every morning, I'll drive her to school. We usually leave around 7.30. We'll drive my, from my house. It's about 12 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. Every morning, we do this kind of same routine. I have a little book. Um, it's basically a book. It's, I think it's called The Gospel Primer. It's this little book that talks about the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself. I have my daughter read it to me. It's just a little chapter each day. And she reads it to me. We talk about it, and we pray about it every single day. It's kind of our daily routine, a daily ritual that we do every single day. I talk about the gospel. Talk about how good Jesus is and what God's done in our lives. At the end of the day, one of the things I realize, I, I can tell my daughter all the time how good God is, how great the gospel is, how wonderful God is, even greater than boyfriends, even greater than stuff that goes on uh, campus that is just not godly, even greater than everything that this buffet line that the school and the world offers. I, I can tell her everything that I want, that God is so much better. And I can even tell her the negative aspects, that to avoid God, to disobey God, could lead to destruction. And I do. I do all that. I tell her the good aspects of God. I tell her the negative aspects of disobeying God. 
But you know, at the end of the day, I, I can't change your heart. I can't change your heart. That's something where my wife and I, we pray, and honestly, at the end of the day, it's something I struggle with. I sit there and I'm like, man, if there is something I can do to just snap my fingers just to make her love Jesus. You know, at the end of the day, I can make my daughter read the Bible daily. I can make my daughter pray. I can make my daughter go to church. I can make my daughter do all these things. And I can do it very effectively. But I can't make her love Jesus. I've not changed her. Do you understand what I'm talking? True change didn't happen. It's one of the reasons why sometimes parents, maybe this was your parents, as good of intentions your mom and dad may have had in trying to establish righteous roles in your life, righteous habits in your life, sometimes, and I tell people this all the time, like my daughter's just a freshman in high school, my youngest daughter's a seventh grader. Everything parental is still in theory for me and my wife. It's still in theory. We're still working it out practically. Very happy where we're at today. My daughter just got back from camp. She came running up to me, gave me a big hug. I love her. She was a great daughter. We have a great relationship. We spend a lot of time with each other snuggling, playing video games. That's what we love to do. At the end of the day, they're still in a working process. But the point that I would make is this, is that sometimes if parents, maybe if your parents were people that were just trying to get you to walk in a righteous path by getting you to do external things, even though their intentions may have been good, even though there is maybe some sort of benefit to getting you to read your Bible instead of reading other things that may not be God-centered. Their superimposing biblical concepts over you can never do anything to truly change your heart. That's something that only God does. And this is what Paul's trying to say. He's writing to a group of believers that are like, look, you, you guys met Jesus and your hearts were changed. Why are you going back to a religious system that doesn't change hearts to live according to? Here's what was happening. These people were going on in their walks with Christ. These religious leaders came in They says, we think the way that you need to be holy is you need to abide by the law of Moses. You gotta be circumcised. You gotta live according to the particular uh, dictates of the law that we're gonna tell you. We'll be very selective of which ones we think you should live according to. At the end of the day, they started doing it. But it never really changed them. It didn't help them to be better people. It didn't help them to be more in love with Christ. In fact, what Paul is trying to say, and there's a whole point in which Paul even wrote this letter to the Galatians, is that these people actually went from bondage in paganism into freedom in Christ, and then back into a bondage of religion. It's the whole point of why, why Paul wrote this letter. Paul's concern is freedom. Change comes as a result of freedom. Make sure you get that straight. Because if your goal, if your intention is to somehow be a good Christian, to be a nice Christian, and not be a free Christian then you will end up being trapped again, somehow, somewhere. Because there's always a voice somewhere wanting to speak to you, wanting to tell you how to be good. Follow our steps, you'll be good. Follow our path, you'll be a righteous Christian. Do the things that we tell you to do. You'll be a disciplined Christian. You'll speak in tongues, you'll prophesy, you'll do the things that we think are correct and right and righteous, you'll do them. Just follow our footsteps and you will get there and you'll find yourself right back in another form of bondage, another form of slavery. And some of you, that's been your Christian history. 
Because maybe you had a youth leader, you had someone in your life, a pastor in your life, someone over you, maybe someone who cared about you, maybe even someone who was caring about your soul. But the way that they went about trying to get you to walk righteous, walk in Christ, walk in faith, was actually bringing you to another form of bondage. And bondage in that particular case can be manipulative. You feel overwhelmed by guilt. You feel as if something's not right in your walk with Christ, in your walk, in, in your walk with God in your life. Something's always wrong with you. It's a type of bondage. And it's the type of bondage that Jesus wanted to set you free from. So the first thing that we see is the law and Torah, system government. The second aspect of system government is just throw out in there like pastor, leader, religious. What I mean by this is sometimes there are churches, and I, I remember a church not too long ago, that the way it was set up was the pastor was sort of like the head honcho leader, kind of in charge of everything. Honestly, it got so hardcore that even if you wanted to get married, you had to like go talk to the dude and just be like, hey, I'm really interested in getting married. Like, who should I marry? The guy's like, I think you should marry that chick over there. She looks hot. You know, she loves Jesus. She's got a bun in her hair. But yeah, it's okay. She loves Jesus, you know? And you're like, okay, all right. Well, you're my leader. I guess I should marry her, you know? And it's just like, like I'm not kidding. I'm not making this stuff up. And so they end up getting married. And, and the point of the matter is, is that the guy's idea or perspective is like, look, I'm holy. I hear God's voice. I know what's up. In the spirit realm, you guys don't because you're kind of carnal and fleshly and, you know, you guys watch TV and I don't. And I know what's up. I know how to live according to God. You guys don't. So you need to come to me. I'll tell you what's up. I'll tell you who you should marry. I'll tell you how to interpret the Bible. I'll tell you how to live. I'll tell you what books you should listen to. I'll tell you, read and tell you what messages you should listen to. I'll tell you what movies you should watch and what movies you should avoid. And I'll tell you everything because I'll, I'll basically be your Holy Spirit in your life for you. And again, it's a type of bondage. There's various degrees by which sometimes churches and groups can operate like this. And again, it's a type of bondage that is actually not leading you to freedom, and it's really not changing you. It can't change you. Because let me just put it this way. At the end of the day, people that are being conformed or conformed by external forms of religion or religious practice are not becoming more full of love. You're becoming more full of guilt. You're not becoming more thankful. You're actually becoming more frustrated. You're not becoming people that are more full of wanting to show generosity and give. You become people that are just fearful of what's around you, what you do or what you don't do that might actually offend God or, if anything, offend God's leaders. That's not freedom. That's actually bondage. That's the very thing to which Paul is writing to this group of Galatian believers saying, I don't want for you. I want to make sure that you guys stay close to Jesus. The final one is kind of an obvious one in terms of system govern, government is like this idea of paganism and demonic type ideas. And what I mean by this is that there are various forms of paganism, all right? There are those that are like outright demonic, all right? Child sacrifice, people giving blood oaths, all sorts of crazy things that you sometimes read about, you watch sometimes on TV or weird freakish websites. At the end of the day, that's just like hardcore paganism. And, it's, and, and again, it's a, it's a desire to somehow tap into some sort of spirit realm to bring about change. Maybe change over your group of people. Maybe change in weather patterns so that it's going to rain, your corn can grow. Uh, maybe it's change in your life so that maybe your wife who's infertile can actually have a baby. Maybe it's change in your career so your boss can drop dead and you can be the new boss. Um, whatever it is, these are various forms of sort of demonic types of paganism. The more subtle forms of paganism, I would say, 
are basically just bad, false ideas about God. Just bad, false ideas about God. That basically view God as sort of this evil father, this evil God that is out to destroy you. I'll give you an example of this. Yesterday, last night, I was out to dinner with my daughter and my wife uh, while my, my oldest daughter, I said, was already at camp. And then we're hanging out. There's a tip jar, and it says, you know, tip for good karma. My daughter's like, Dad, what's, what's karma? I don't know what that is. So we started talking about that. I'm like, well, karma is kind of a way that some people think that, you know, you, you give good stuff, good stuff will happen to you. You give, good, bad, if you give, give bad stuff, bad stuff will happen to you. It's this sort of idea that, you know, you get what you give, kind of an idea. And it's sort of this idea of you work really hard, good stuff will be blessed back upon you. And it says it's really just a works-based idea. It's pagan. It's not godly. It's not what God intended for us to live according to. In fact, it's very opposite of what the gospel says. The gospel says, you're an evil person, God will bless you. All right? And that doesn't mean it becomes a license to just go out and sin. In fact, we'll look at this more next week because this is where oftentimes people take grace and they abuse it. But grace that actually can be abused is actually grace, I should say, grace that can't be abused is really not grace. Grace that says, uh, you know, we hedged all rules around it so it doesn't get abused. You don't have grace anymore. You've got rules blocking grace. <laughs> you have legalism again. You've got bondage again, not grace. So, the first two types of government, self-government, Systems government having to do with the Torah, having to do with religious leaders, people trying to help you, maybe people trying to superimpose their ideas over you to help make you holy. I'll throw one more thing in there. I remember several years ago, this is a whole other, I can spend a whole other time talking about this, but one of the big issues that oftentimes gets brought up in, in the church is like the issue of drinking. All right? Simply the Bible says this don't get drunk. Just don't get drunk. It's an imperative. Don't get drunk. So if you're getting drunk, you're in sin. You got to repent. Something that God says don't do. But the Bible doesn't say anything about drinking, enjoying a nice glass of wine, or enjoying something that God gives from the fruit of the vine to be able to enjoy. In fact, Jesus turns water into wine. The point that I would make is this, is that it's one of those areas in the Bible that is not an imperative. It doesn't say you must not drink ever, period. End of discussion. It just simply says, don't get drunk. Some people would say, look, you know, some people struggle with this. We want to make a simple rule that nobody in leadership, nobody who serves can ever drink. What you've done is you've just thrown superimposed rules over it again. You've, you've, you've destroyed grace again. Remember years ago, there's a gal basically said, when are you going to make it a rule in the church that anybody who's involved in leadership can't drink? I says, I, I can't do that. I can't speak where the Bible is silent in that area. I can't. It just, it's, it's superimposing a law. I mean, I think there's ways in which we can live around it where, yes, people that are in leadership and people that are serving need to be aware of uh, brothers and sisters that are a little bit more weaker in those particular areas or the conscience is struggling in those areas. You've got to be sensitive to those particular things. I totally agree with that. Love must trump liberty all the time. We'll look at that more next week. But at the end of the day, to simply throw down some sort of a broad stroke rule that says you must not do this because this is what we think is best for you. We will constrain your conscience because we voted, we have decided that this is what we're going to do. Even when the Bible is silent over that, it's exactly what Paul's talking about. Saying we can't go there. Even though it might be done by good intentions. Even though somebody's trying to help somebody else out. It's 
forcing the conscience to do things that the Bible doesn't force it to do. So the question really has to be asked, then, then how are we supposed to live? Where does freedom come from? How do we find freedom? What does it look like? And this is exactly what the Bible says. It leads us to kind of the second aspect. The first is walking in the flesh. The second is which Paul describes as walking in the spirit. And here's basically what Paul says, is that the third way is being spirit-governed. See, one of the problems that can oftentimes happen in the church, especially when you start talking about grace, when you start talking about the fact that you are saved by grace, God has saved you, he's washed you, he's cleansed you, not because of something you've done, but by grace he freely accepts you. Some people get really nervous. They're like, man, if you start preaching that, then people will take advantage of that. People start sleeping with their girlfriends. People start dabbling with porn. People start taking advantage of other people, stealing things, murdering other people. It'll be a horrible church. And the reality is, is that for one, if they really understand it, they won't be doing that because their hearts will be so full of thankfulness that God saved them that they won't do it. If they don't understand it, then yeah, they may, based upon some sort of caricature of grace, abuse it, destroy it, and start taking advantage of other people. Again, that's not freedom. That's actually a new form of bondage. So good people in the church sometimes try to hedge in the concern of abusive grace, and they step in, they say, We can't let grace be abused, so here's what we're going to do. Here's our list. Here's our rules. Here's what we're saying that you must follow just so that you can be holy. Just so that you can keep yourself clean and above table. Paul's saying that's not how it works. It can't work that way. Because the way that God has set this up is that the third way that we're to be governed, third way in which he identifies, the Bible identifies this concept of government, is that the Holy Spirit takes up residency amongst us, within us. Let me put it this way. The only thing that can actually enact or bring about full, complete transformation or change in our lives is not by superimposing rules or laws or restrictions upon us. That never changes a person. In the same way, me getting hit by the cop, being pulled over, and being slapped with a ticket changed my heart towards the law of the land. I don't love it any more than I did before. But the point of the matter is, is that in the same way the Bible, just being told what you failed to do or what you shouldn't be doing, you don't fall more in love with God. What ends up happening is you fall into guilt. You fall into feeling being destroyed. You fall into a place of feeling horrible because you're not living up. You're not a good Christian. You're not the Christian you should be. You're not the Christian your neighbor is. You're not the Christian your grandma was. And you feel horrible. It leads to either one or two extremes. Despair. Because you realize you're not good. Or arrogance because you think you are. It doesn't change you. True change that it looks like, you become a loving person. We'll look more at that next week, but the law can't change your heart. It can't make you a loving person. It can't make you generous. It can only say you gotta love. It can only say you should be generous because it's the right way to go. It's better than stinginess. But it can't change you. So how do we change? This is what Paul's answer is. Is we change by the spirit of God. God realizes the job 
to change us is so huge. It's such a big task. We can't do it by self-government. We can't even do it by government even of the highest order, the Torah. So how do we do it? God realizes the only way that we can truly change is by not being a God that's distant, who just simply shouts imperatives down to us, just simply barks orders at us and says, do this, follow this, live this. That's not what God does. God says, listen, the only way that you will truly change, the only way that you will truly be a different person is if I come and be with you. Not just next to you, but with you, in you. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what Jesus said would happen, is that God, the creator God, who made all things, and the God who also remakes all things new, who is good, who's a holy God, who has high demands, who doesn't demand anything less of you. His demands have always remained the same. He demands holiness. He demands righteousness. But the reality is, is when he comes looking to us for holiness and righteousness, we're bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. But what God does in his goodness and his love is he provides the means of a supplementary holiness and righteousness. Not from ourselves, but from his son. Jesus comes into this world on our behalf, lives the life we should have lived, dies a death that we had deserved to die, was punished in our place for us, died on the cross, rose three days later, 50 days later after that, made a promise to the church saying, I'm leaving you guys, but I'm not leaving for good because actually what's going to end up happening is because I am in a body and the body is constrained by time and place, I will leave, but I will send my Holy Spirit, and he will come and live with you, and in the same way that I was with you present all the time, the Holy Spirit will be with you all the time. So anywhere you're at, everywhere you go, the Holy Spirit will always be there in you. God will be in you, shaping you, changing you, transforming you, convicting you, moving you, leading you, guiding you. That's amazing that this is how much God loves us. Doesn't just simply expect us to change on our own. Doesn't just simply expect us to submit ourselves to some other form of external religion. Why? Because he knows that all of those things lead to another form of slavery, which he saved us from in the first place. So what he does, is he says, I will come and live within you. The one true free moral agent in all the universe has chosen to take up residency in us not only to set us free but so that we can remain free this is absolutely amazing what God's done for us you say well how does this happen how do, how do I change how do I get this that's what Paul would say earlier Read it to you. It says in verse five, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but faith working through love. How does it happen? How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? How does God bring about true change? It's by faith we trust in what God's done. It's the gospel that saves us, 
but it's also the gospel that sanctifies us. It's a big word that basically means transforms us. If you want to look at it this way, to be better people. How do we become better people? Not by external religious activity. Not by being forced into reading our Bibles every day, keeping a journal, going to church, praying, showing up at prayer meetings, serving at church. That's not how we're changed. Some of us fall into complicity with that. We just do it because we're like, I want to change, I'll do it. You're like the hardcore people. But at the end of the day, that never really changes our hearts. What changes our hearts is when we understand what God did for us on our behalf, how much he loves us, what he's done for us on our account. Salvation to us, it's a free gift. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He gives it to us freely. But it cost him everything. And he did this for you because he loves you. He did this because he wants to see you transformed first and foremost by being free. Because people that are free, people that know that they're truly loved, they become a different person. Have you ever met somebody that's in love? I mean, they can go from being somebody who's like gnarly cantankerous to being somebody that's just like, they like prance around. They're like humming songs, right? They're like walking around. They got a smile on their face. They're like, what happened to you? I know what happened to you. You're in love. Love's changing you. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. But these loves on this planet, in this world, are transient. And at best, they don't last forever. I mean, even the best of marriages. I'm going on 20 years of marriage. I love my wife. Our love has grown for each other over the years. But you know what? I still let her down. She still lets me down. We're very imperfect, and we still step on each other's toes. I don't look to my wife to satisfy all my every needs. But you know, I look at my wife as a reflection of God and she completes me. <laughs> I love my wife. She completes me. At the end of the day, it's God that I look to for the full satisfaction. And the point that I would make is this, is that it's God who actually brings about freedom. The way he brings about freedom is that he allows us to taste something of his absolutely life transforming love that he has for us that was put on display on the cross in which Jesus was crushed for our sins. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on him. He bore our sin for us for one simple reason. Because we are bound by sin. To set us free. When you see that, when you know that, the affections of your heart are radically changed. When you realize that there is a God who loves you so much that he would be so willing to place upon his own son the punishment that you deserve for your own rebellion, your own sin, your own self-serving actions towards God, your own God-belittling behavior towards him, your creator. That he goes so far to do that for you. We can't help but want to love him back. That's what the gospel does. So true change, it comes through sitting at the feet of the gospel. We're going to respond. What I want to finish with is we're going to worship. 
But one of the last things I want you to think about in terms of governed by God, led by God, guided by God, is one of the very clear graphic displays that Jesus gave to us to say, when you think of this, remember what I did for you. Remember the price that I did as we partake of the communion every week. We eat the bread, we drink the cup. We do it because it reminds us of the great price that Jesus paid for us on our behalf. It's one of the reasons why Paul says when you do it, don't, don't do it in an unworthy manner. Don't just do it in a way that's trite. Don't do it in a way that just sort of grabs it and eats it and doesn't think about the reality of it. Do it in a way in which when you eat the bread, when you drink the cup, you, you realize that Jesus, the one true free moral agent, actually became bound to set us who are bound to be free. This is why going back into various forms of religion, various forms of enslavement, is so troubling to Paul the Apostle. Because he's like, Jesus set you free, guys. Why are you going back? Why are you diverging away from the gospel? Stay close to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're going to respond. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to go to Jesus. In fact, even more importantly, Jesus actually comes to us. He comes to us. He comes to us through things like preaching the word of God. He comes to us in things like the body of Christ gathering together. Because when Paul says that the body of Christ, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, FYI, he's not writing that to you as an individual. He's actually writing that to a group of people sitting in someone's living room reading it. It's a universal statement saying if you are a Christian, if you love Jesus, you're part of God's body. The Holy Spirit has taken up residency in you. This is why at the end of the day, People who claim to love Jesus, people who are in Christ, are our brothers and sisters. This is why tribalism in the body of Christ is such a shameful thing. The mentality that says, we're better than the church down the street, it actually, that should be confessed and repented of, not talked about and delighted in. At the end of the day, Jesus is who sets us free. So we'll partake of communion my encouragement to you would be to confess sin, to confess anything that would just be leading you into further bondage, to draw near to Jesus, to recognize what he did for you. We'll give our tithes and our offerings. If you want, you can deposit them in our little donation boxes in the back. If you're one of our guests, we say this all the time, don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us, this is your church, to help keep giving towards the mission of this church so that the gospel can continue to keep going forward. I want you to feel that. Feel being a part of that mission, the importance of engaging with that. Anything that we have that we can, can contribute towards that is a good thing. So think about how God would bless you and lead you as a free moral agent to give joyfully, just like God gave joyfully. We'll sing. We'll worship. But guys, at the end of the day, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom that looks at freedom as an opportunity to do whatever you want. This is really not freedom. It's another form of bondage. But a freedom that says, I'm free actually to love those that are unlovely. I'm actually free to love those that are totally unlike me. I'm actually free now to be engaged in community with people that I would have normally never had anything in common with. That's what true freedom is. That's what Jesus did. He's God. 
totally holy, totally separate from us. Because he's free, he says, I'm free to become a human being, to lay my life down, to pay a, to pay a debt that I didn't create, to set people free that despise me. That love is amazing. I'm gonna pray, we'll worship. Michael, come on up. Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. God, that's our starting point. That's where everything begins. God, it's at the cross that we look at your love being put on display for us. It's at the cross that we realize that the punishment that your son took obviously represented a great punishment that we should have taken. Our offense obviously must have been very great. God, I pray right now that you help us just to fathom that, to somehow grasp that, to somehow just wrap our minds around that, that our sin is a great offense to you. But God, that your love is even greater than our sin. Your love has actually created a means by which to set us free from our sin, to set us free from bad thinking, to set us free from pagan ideas, to set us free from even satanic plots and evil desires from the evil one to try to suppress and destroy and oppress us. God, that your grace sets us free so that even, I just even think of our brothers and sisters that are living in places like Egypt and there's even Christians in Libya that are just under oppressive regimes and governments. Thank you, God, that they're free. Even though they're radically oppressed, they're free. That's what the gospel does. Sets us free. God, because of that, we just want to now freely worship you. We want to freely give back to you, freely devote our energies and our might and our strength and our song and our voices and our praise Godward to the God who sets us free. Because let's worship God. Let's just recognize that the freedom of God's in this place. Wants to set you free. Man, maybe some of you tonight, you guys are bound. Some of you are just bound. You know it. You're bound by bad ideas. You're bound by thoughts, philosophies, concepts of God that actually aren't leading to deep love. The ideas that are constraining your mind, that are pressing your thoughts, are actually leading you to become more fearful. Not more loving, not more generous, not more giving. That type of life is actually a restricting life. It's an oppressive life that actually kills you. This is why the gospel wants to set us free so that we can be loving, so that we can be generous, be joyful. I encourage you, if that's you here tonight, let me just do this. If that's you tonight, I just want you to raise your hand. All I want to do is pray for you. Anybody here, you just kind of feel like that's, you just got stuff that's oppressing you. Oppressing you. It's crushing you. Cool. I'm just going to pray for you guys. God, I just pray for those that right now, they're just feeling that. Maybe bad ideas, bad thoughts, maybe past sin that they're still paying some consequences for. Maybe it's not even sin that they've done. Maybe it's sin that's been done against them. It's crushing them. God, I pray that you just lead them to Jesus. Help them to find freedom. We worship you now, God. We direct our hearts now to worship you. God, when we consider what you've done for us, great love 
God, that, that motivates us to actually want to love you. It's your great love, God, that actually motivates us to want to relinquish sin, sinful proclivities and habits. God, it's your love that actually motivates us to want to find people that are our enemies and embrace them and love them. Find people that we are at odds with and be reconciled to them. Religion can't do that. It can tell us when we're not doing it and make us feel guilty. But it's only the gospel that can actually motivate us to want to do these things that otherwise all we want to do is resist them. God, we thank you that the gospel is about a new heart. It's a new birth. We don't make ourselves born again. We don't make ourselves new. It's a gift freely given by your grace we didn't earn it we don't deserve it we can't boast because of something we did to get it we're not entitled to it but God when we have it when we have your favor we have everything God feel like we want to sing, we want to dance, we want to be full of joy. We just want to love people. We want to be pure, we want to be holy. We want to be loving people. Scott, we just, we thank you that that's what the gospel does to us. It changes us. It transforms us. It is the very thing that makes us new. God, for that, all we can simply say is thank you. It's a gift. So God, as we leave now, as we part, as our hearts have been affected by the gospel and moved by your great love, God, send us out of here. Just like the, like the apostles did when they had been with Jesus, something happened to them. Their lives were changed. They were crazy people. They were willing to sell all they had to give to the poor. They lost their minds. They were willing to just preach the gospel even when they were told to stop by the dignitaries. They were compelled by a force that was bigger than anything, more strong, greater than anything all this universe it's even greater than our sin it's greater than our shame it's greater than our fears it's your love and God we thank you for that so send us out of here God as a bunch of ambassadors people who have been to that country people who have been affected by the rulership the kingdom of that country Help us to live as ambassadors of that. We ask for your help to do that. We need each other to do that, God. We need community to do that. So God, I pray for all the community groups meeting throughout this week. Pray for those that aren't in community right now. That you'd help them to figure out a place to land, to find some place where they can start sharing their lives with other people. 
God got just like the Galatians. We're just like them. Freedom can very easily be lost. We don't want to lose it. We don't want to walk away from it. We want to cling to Jesus, look to Jesus, love Jesus, who loves us back. Thank you for that. We ask all these things in his name.